So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. It's on page 1,428, if you've managed to grab a brown Bible on your way in or it's on your chair. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to um, slip this one in your bag, take it home with you. It's yours, um, the one that's in your hands. We want everybody to have a Bible. um, And regardless of whether you intend to come back or not, it's irrelevant. Please just take it if you need a Bible. So Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read from verse 16 to verse 18. Little section again. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So yes, today we're looking at this, this wonderful subject of fasting. And I think it's, it's pretty widely recognized that it's one of those topics that's, that's, that's massively neglected in evangelical circles. So in churches like ours. Um, I'm, my guess is that you may have only ever heard a few messages on the subject in your lifetime, if you've been going to church your entire life, as I have. And I think there's a few pretty strong reasons for that. Let me just tell you what they are as we get into this. I think, first of all, because part of what the ethos of being a, you know, an evangelical Christian, a Christian who wants to take the Bible as the Word of God, is that we emphasize a spirituality that's, that's more about the inward rather than the outward. She's wonderful and fascinating, isn't she? But all eyes on me. Okay. <laughs> Um, the inward over the outward. We tend to emphasize inner spirituality over outward, partly because of passages like the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is saying, you know, don't do it for a display. So we, we emphasize what it means to be godly on the inside. And uh, the trouble with that is that I think that there's a kind of a misunderstanding going on here, maybe an overreaction to outward performance of religion, that we don't quite understand how the soul, spirit, and the body are totally integrated in biblical understanding. That you are your body. We kind of had this notion that your soul, or the real you, your, the real you is something floating around inside your body, and that will one day get released when the body dies. But the Bible wants to really emphasize that the, the, your body is you, and hence to be separated from your body is something totally wrong, totally unnatural, and God wants to give you a new body even after you've died. And that obviously has massive implications for all kinds of things, like the way you worship, This is why a lot of Christians want to say, as they did in the Bible, that your worship should inhabit the way you hold yourself, your body, what you do with your hands, what you do, how loudly you sing. Um, It's not just what's going on in your heart. It has implications on the way you eat, whether you exercise. You know, Dan Tan worships by his body. I was going to say worships his body. That's not, maybe it's true. But, (laughs) but, you know, when, when you go vigorously as an act of worship, I want this body to glorify you in exercise or in sleep or in work or in all kinds of things. Um, there's all kinds of ways that your body can glorify God, but we kind of want to separate the two so often. It's just, it's just not a biblical way of thinking. So that's one thing. Another is that leaders don't speak about it very often. And I think that that's, a, I think my theory is that it's because they don't want to be hypocrites. They don't want to talk about something that they're not really comfortable to do themselves very regularly. So um, 
my dad is a diabetic, and uh, he's been a diabetic since I was six when he had pancreatitis. And as a result, I've never in my living memory ever had any knowledge of him fasting at all. He never fasts. And uh, he, he puts it down to medical grounds. It's dubious. I'm not really sure. But anyway, I said, he asked me yesterday what I was speaking on today. I said, fasting. And I said to him, I don't think I've ever heard you speak on it, Dad. And he said, he, he looked at me with a sort of glint in his eye. and said, I did in 1978. And, uh, <laughs> so that's another thing. Another is that um, it's supposed to be occasional and not routine. So by occasional, I mean, it's not something necessarily that is um, something you, you plan for. Um, there's no... No part of the New Testament that will tell the church or Christians that they have to fast at certain periods in the year. That's a later sort of um, tradition that's developed in certain sections of the church. And actually, it's a tradition that has its own dangers. So Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well when he said that fasting is something a man should do only when he feels impelled or led to by spiritual reasons. It's not to be done because a certain section of the church enjoins fasting on a Friday or during the period of Lent or at any other time. He says we should not do these things mechanically. And I want to say, yes, absolutely. Um, You want to be spirit-led in these things. But the trouble with that is what happens if you never are led to do it? Um, Suspiciously, very few of us seem to ever be led by the spirit to fast. It's one of those things that we sort of manage to wriggle out of. And another reason is just Probably I should have put this first, but just because it is so unpleasant. You get bad breath, you get grumpy, and you feel weak. My wife complains that she has blackouts. Um, I, you know, you don't want to be around me generally when I'm fasting, but it's just one of those things. It it makes it much easier to make the argument, doesn't it, that my spirituality is just something inward and, uh, and not with my body. But, but for all these reasons, we've neglected fasting. Now, look at, look at how Jesus treats this subject. He assumes that if you are a disciple of his, you're going to fast on occasion. It's there, isn't it, when he says, but when you fast. Just like when he said earlier, when you give or when you pray. He says in verse 16, when you fast. Verse 17, but when you fast. Verse 18, that your fasting may be seen and so on. He, he assumes that fasting is going to be part of your regular spirituality, piety, however you want to describe it. Now, when Jesus was facing the crowd that was around him then, the people that he was preaching to were used to fasting regularly or knew others who fasted very regularly. And it changes the context slightly, doesn't it, to what we're dealing with today, where fasting is quite irregular and abnormal. Um, so the Pharisees would fast twice a week. And it wasn't because the Bible told them to. The Bible only commands you to, uh, commanded the Old Testament Christians, to, the Jews, to, to fast once a year for one day a year. But the Pharisees would fast twice a week because they wanted to be extra sure that they were spiritual. And obviously in that context, when, when it becomes a commonplace thing you do, you can see how there's all kinds of potential for, to become a hypocrite, to kind of wear this garb of spirituality, which is what Jesus keeps attacking in this part of the sermon. He doesn't want people to go through the motions and just wear their spirituality as a facade to the watching world. So does this passage have any relevance to us when... We don't really fast, and we ignore fasting, and we underemphasize it. And I say, well, maybe it has a little bit more, emphasis, more importance and, 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 and pertinence to our situation. For this reason, 
that if fasting is something we don't do regularly, how much more prone are we to think that we're something special if we do it? We get an extra kudos if you're one of those extra spiritual Christians who fast every so often. I had, my um, aunt and uncle back in the 70s fostered a lad who was um, um, abandoned at birth, a, a Ugandan lad who is, a, um, was called Norman. And Norman um, stayed with them until he was 11 years old. And you got to understand, they were in, in a, living in sort of greater Manchester. Everybody around them was white. Everyone at school was white. And when this guy, Norman, uh, went to school, you know, wearing his afro, um, you know, it, it was the kind of era for the afros, all the girls wanted to touch Norman's afro. It was, it was the novelty in school, much like we want to touch Coyote's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air look. <laughs> it's like, what does that feel like? So I only tell you that, that I think somehow... The novel can even attract this even more. That if, if it's something unusual, the temptation when you fast to, to do it as a display of hypocrisy, which is what Jesus is, is criticizing here, or for the admiration of others, is, uh, is even more acute, isn't it? But we mustn't let this put us off. As I just said, Christ expects and desires and wants you to fast. I'm not going to tell you how often, or how intensely, but he does. It's absolutely true. I think what we need to do, however, is sort of take a step back and just think about what fasting is in the Bible. Um, I want to ask, what is it? Why, why do we do it? And how should we do it? And um, let's just try and take a, a wide-angle view on this whole thing. Firstly, what is it? Fasting is self-denial and consumption for a defined period of time. You see all kinds of ways that people fast in the Bible. Jesus went without food for 40 days. Um, Daniel went without special meats and fancy food or wine, just ate vegetables on a couple of occasions. Um, Ezra went without food or water for three days. Esther called for a similar kind of fast. Sometimes fast involved the whole nation, sometimes just a select group, and sometimes just one person. And sometimes they were scheduled in the calendar, others were just um, voluntary and occasional. So you can see fasting is massively diverse in the scriptures. And so when we come to the next question, why fast? It's actually not a simple question. But I think we can boil it down to three things. So if you were to ask yourself today, why should I go away? with a determination that at some point I'm going to fast and, and for, for various reasons, whatever. These, let me give you some reasons why you should fast. I think it should come down to one of these three things, roughly. It has to do with humiliation, devotion, and petition. Humiliation, devotion, and petition. The first thing, humiliation. Your body can reflect the humility of your heart, can't it? We know it's true also of somebody who's proud. A proud person carries themselves differently, don't they, from a humble person. And a humble person might have a demeanor that tells the world that they are humble, that they feel small. They may carry themselves in a way that's small. And they may um, sort of hold their head down or avoid eye contact. This is, this is humility expressing itself in your body. Do you know also the reverse is true? Your body can produce humility in your heart. I think about when you feel sick. Don't you feel weak 
and, 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 uh, and vulnerable and dependent upon others whenever you're sick, depending on how severe the sickness is. That's when your body is, is, is forcing your spirit to be humbled. And sometimes I think God allows people to experience sickness for the purpose of humbling them. I think that's quite obvious in the scriptures. That God brings down the proud and, and he has ways of doing it. We feel the limitations of our body. That when we, are, when we are, um, expect one thing of our, our bodies and, and we find that we, we attain much lower, it humbles us, doesn't it? So maybe how well you do in exams or... Um, you know, if you, were to, if you were to get on an athletics track with Jess here, Jess is a 400 meters hurdler. She could thrash anyone in this room, men included, 400, 400 hurdles, whatever it is, and it would humble us all to the ground. You know, I would find it utterly humiliating. She says, I'm never going to run against Jess. So you see how your body can humble your spirit as much as your spirit can reflect humility through your body. And so fasting in the scriptures is a way of enforcing a humility on your spirit through the choices you make with your body. It's voluntarily humbling yourself through an act that forces you to feel weak, that forces you to feel dependent, that forces you to recognize your limitations, your smallness, the fact that you're a creature and not the creator. So a few of the ways in which you see this happening in the scriptures where people express this humility or this enforced humility through fasting, include these. One of them is in, in times of grief. It's odd, isn't it? But in the Bible, when people are suffering loss, like through the loss of a loved one or God's judgment on the people, they compound that loss by inflicting suffering on themselves through fasting. And you ask, why on earth would they do that? David does it when his, his child is sick and about to die. The Israelites do it on a number of occasions. Why? I think the answer is this, that when we are suffering, the temptation is to adopt a position of self-righteousness or of rights before the living God and assume that you are being treated unfairly by God, which of course is pride. We see this reaction all the time in people, people who run away from Christianity, run away from the church because of their suffering, because they think that they did not deserve their suffering. When people fast in an occasion of grief, I think it's a way of submitting themselves to God in humility and saying, God, whatever is my lot, I accept it from you. Not that they don't want to pray for different circumstances or for God's intervention, but it's a way of humbling themselves before the holy, mighty, powerful hand of God in bad circumstances. Another reason why people humiliate themselves through fasting is in times of, of sinfulness when they just need to come back to God in repentance. I mentioned to you that there was only one prescribed fast in the Bible um, which was done every single year. It was on the Day of Atonement. This was when the whole nation gathered around for the sacrifice of an animal and another scapegoat that would go into the wilderness to represent the sins of the people being taken off them. And on that day alone, God told the people to afflict themselves by fasting. Why? Because God didn't just want their, their repentance to happen by proxy. A priest doing it for you up there on the altar. 
the whole thing taken out of your hands so that you're not a part of it and your heart's not engaged. He wanted everyone's hearts engaged, which meant that while the priest is killing the lamb on the altar, much as Jesus was, went to the cross for you, taking your sins upon himself, it doesn't just happen out there as something distinct from you, but you are connected through it by humbling yourself in affliction through fasting. God wanted the people to recognize their need for his grace and forgiveness by humbling themselves under his, his all-knowing eye. That's why when we were studying the Beatitudes a little bit earlier on, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Christ is showing us that the way into the Christian faith is through this self-humiliation. And friends, for some of you, it might be that God wants you to approach him afresh in humility by fasting. Maybe you've been wandering from God for some time. Maybe you've been caught up in sin. Maybe you feel your conscience accusing you and the Holy Spirit speaking to you and inviting you back to himself. This is one of the ways God calls us back to himself through a process of humbling ourselves. Let me read to you from Joel 2. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord. Now here this is words directly to you. If this is you, I'm speaking to. He says, Return to me with all your heart. With fasting with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. And then he says, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. In other words, where God might have judged you, he wants to offer you grace, he wants to offer you mercy, he wants to offer you kindness. But the road back to God is through humility. And this is where fasting can be a powerful way of crushing your own pride and arrogance and independence from God and saying, God, your will or no will. There's also just this way in which we want to humiliate ourselves in fasting through just the experience of self-denial. I think that we live in an age where The comforts of life are probably the most dangerous thing to you having a radical, passionate heart for God. The sheer ease of of life in in London. I know some of you think life is not that easy in London. Friends, you can have anything you want at a click. You could go on your phone now and order practically anything from Amazon and it will arrive at your door tomorrow morning. We live in a bizarre time of history where the ease is is hard to fully express. You could walk 20 minutes from this room and you could eat cuisine from pretty much anywhere from the face of the planet. Now, what does this do to your spirit? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What does that produce inside us? What does it do to our hunger for God? Some of the early Christians rightly or wrongly, felt that the comforts of life were a bit of a threat to their pursuit of God. And so some of them sought to live life out in, in the deserts where there was, life was difficult and where they were separated from all the comforts of um, day-to-day existence in the cities and the towns. And these guys were called the Desert Fathers. They became monks or they became preachers and they... They sought to live very um, strict lives of self-denial. 
Now, I'm not sure that what they chose was right, but I think some of their instincts were right. Here's how Cornelius Plantinga puts it. He says, self-indulgence is the enemy of gratitude. And self-discipline, usually it's friend and generator. So the more you indulge yourself, the more ungrateful you become. And the more self-disciplined you are, the more thankful for every good gift that God gives to you. And then he goes on. That's why gluttony is a deadly sin. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's one of the most acceptable sins in the Western world. That we, we can eat till we are sick and no one will think that that is a sinful thing to do. That we can indulge, you know, your daily um, sort of dose of gluttony, whatever it is that you indulge in, whether it's food or other forms of comfort, and we do it blindly, not realizing that there could be a spiritual implication. He says, that's why gluttony is a deadly sin. He said, the early desert fathers believed that a person's appetites are linked. Full stomachs and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. I don't know if you agree with that. I certainly do. I feel it every time at Christmas or when I'm on holiday and I start indulging myself physically. I find that my hunger for God diminishes. And so fasting is a way of humiliating yourself through self-denial in the hope that God will resurrect a a holy hunger for his presence, a desire for his word, a yearning to, to feast on him even as you fast from what you are not putting in your mouth. I think that's the reason why Daniel, by the way, when he's dragged to Babylon as a teenager, and probably castrated, and certainly forced to change his name and, and adopt all the customs of the Babylonians. He does something very unusual that commentators have puzzled over for centuries. He decides that he's not going to eat the meat or drink the wine that's offered to him at the table. And there's no biblical reason why he should do that. He could eat the meat, fine. He could drink the wine, fine. There's nothing wrong in doing those things. But I think the reason he did that was for this purpose, that his spirit might not be bought by the Babylonians. That the comforts that he could indulge with his physical being, his body, should not dull his passion for the living God. And so in making that decision from his teenage years in Babylon, he sets a trajectory of devotion to the living God that takes him along a path of becoming one of God's most influential servants in all of history. Fasting humbles you. Friend, if you're someone who's caught in sin or someone who's caught in ease, I'd encourage you to consider whether God wants you to enter into a season of fasting for the sake of renewing your spiritual vigor. More briefly... Fasting is also about devotion. It's about devotion. It's an opportunity to reconsecrate your life to God afresh. Now, if we think about Christ and his devotion to the Father, what we see in him is a man who has expressed more perfect devotion than anyone else who's ever lived in history. These are the kinds of words that either Christ said or said about him. Or All words he said, in fact, that we can put it that way. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. 
Words that occur in a psalm, but which are rightly put on Jesus' lips. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He says this, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. And He says this, as He's going to the cross, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see as someone who has lived a life of perfect submission and devotion to the Father. He didn't want to do more or less than what the Father had called him to do, but he wanted to live so perfectly in the will of God that his every thought, his every gesture would be devoted to God. Now I find it interesting that our Savior who lived that way began his ministry, his public ministry, by setting aside 40 days for prayer and fasting. A period of time in which he was severely tempted by the enemy, but he was a test. It was a test of whether he was going to devote himself to God or whether he would be seduced towards temptation by the enemy. And so in entering into that period of fasting in the wilderness, Christ was reliving the test that was laid on Adam in the Garden of Eden. The first Adam tested, was tested and failed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, the head of a new race, which is what the the scriptures describe him as, he succeeded with flying colors when he went through the temptations that Satan laid on him and he said no every single time. And through it all, he was fasting. And God, by his spirit, was on him, came on him in the form of a dove before the fast, drove him out into the wilderness by the spirit and then attended to him by angels at the end of the fast. And I want to underline all this for for you. To help you see and understand that this fast was an act of Christ consecrating himself to the Father and his work for the next three years until he would be crucified on the cross. Experiencing and receiving the power of the Spirit that he might live wholly devoted to the Father in the coming years. I don't know what your ambitions are. We all live with conflicting desires and ambitions and things we want to do with our lives. But friends, if there's any part of you that wants to live for God, I want to encourage you that fasting can be a way of devoting, of consecrating yourself to Him. Here are some of the ways that we see that happening in the Scriptures. We see it when people are seeking to develop self-control. Paul fasted often. And do you remember how he said of himself in 1 Corinthians 9 that he beats his body and makes it his slave? He, he calls his body into submission to the will of God. If you're somebody who needs to develop self-control in life, one of the ways might be that you enter a period of fasting and say, God, I want you to help me by your spirit to beat my body and make it my slave that I might run for you with more vigor. We see people fasting when they're seeking guidance, seeking the will of God. This is all devotion, by the way. I'm just trying to flesh out what I mean by fasting as an act of devotion. So in Acts 13, the elders of the church in Antioch, it, it, it names them, and then he says that they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, is Acts 13.2. They were worshipping the Lord and fasting, and their spirit spoke to them and said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. If you're somebody who's seeking guidance from God about the next season of life, where He wants you, what He wants you to do. And friends, I believe every Christian should be seeking God's guidance in these decisions. 
Do not think that you are put on this earth to live purely for your own ambitions and desires. It's a wonderful thing when the desires that God puts in your heart marry with what he's called you to. But for his sake, seek his will in your life. People fast when they're commissioned to a work. So in the very next verse, it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, on Saul and Barnabas, as they sent them off on the first missionary journey ever in the history of the church. A little bit further on in the book of Acts, in Acts 14, 23, we see something similar. It says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see a pattern, don't we? That when people are saying, God, I want to lay my life before you, just as Christ did at the beginning of his ministry, one of the ways in which they choose to do it is by, is by humbling their body and fasting, this act of devotion to God. We see it in times of temptation. People fast like Christ did in the wilderness as a way of crying out to God for fresh devotion to Him so that you can kill temptations in your life. And we see it also just as an act of of worship, as devotion as worship. I think one of the most precious people who I wish I knew more about, I wish we had more clues into who this woman was, but there's a woman in the book of Luke who became a widow at a very young age. She'd only been married for seven years, it says. Her name's Anna. And uh, for the next 84 years, she lives, maybe the math doesn't quite work, but anyway, until she's 84 perhaps. She lives an act of worship and fasting and prayer in the temple day after day as just this consistent desire to devote her life to God and as a reward for her devotion she gets to see the baby Jesus before she dies I think it's such a beautiful little cameo of somebody whose whose whole life was just an act of worship to the living God and friends if you think that your heart is cold or that your life has no direction or that you just have this burning desire God I want to do more for you Maybe a fast is an appropriate way to lay your life before him and say, God, you can have all of me. Lastly, fasting is a way of of petitioning God, of praying to him. So we know that a fast is something that doesn't happen all the time. You'd be dead. It's by definition something that is sort of special and rare. We also know that you are called to pray all the time. So Paul says, pray without ceasing. I think he means be consistently in and out of prayer. Throughout the day, throughout the week, in every year. Not that you're constantly praying. That would be a bit weird and awkward. But that you are always in and out. Your spirit enters into prayer moment by moment. But often in the scriptures, when people who are prayerful people, who believe that God listens to their prayer, find themselves in particularly trying situations and they want to give a certain intensity to their prayers and really cry out to God, it seems that they engage in a period of fasting 
whether it's just because then they have more time to pray, and they're not eating, they're not preparing food, or whether it's because the act of fasting itself is a way of saying, of praying with your body, of, saying, of, of putting your body before the throne and saying, God, my body is crying out to you. Answer, hear my prayer. I'm not sure exactly why or how it works. But we see it again and again in the scriptures that people who find themselves in places of desperation also find themselves in fasting. One example of this is the man Nehemiah. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives far off in the east in a foreign empire. And he hears a story about how his, his, the city that he counts as precious, the city of Jerusalem, is in ruins and, and it's destroyed and it's laid low. And his immediate response is this. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When you read the whole of the book of Nehemiah, what you find is that God selects this man for the rebuilding of that city that he prays for. But it all comes back to this passionate prayer and fasting. And I wonder, do do we care about anyone or anywhere to the degree that Nehemiah cared for Jerusalem such that he was willing to fast and to deny himself in this way. We see it also when Esther finds herself in the most bizarre situation where in the ruling empire of the time, a rule has gone out that the Jews are going to be slaughtered. A kind of proto-Holocaust. But Esther, randomly, or by God's design, and by some of her uncle's wangling, finds herself to, become, to have become the wife of the emperor. And her uncle lays upon her a charge. He says, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And he, he, he calls her to risk her life. She has to go before the emperor and petition him on behalf of her people. But it's a dangerous thing because the emperor can make a choice. If anyone comes into his presence without them being invited, he can instantly have them put to death. And so she knows that unless she receives a summons, she can't come into his presence. And what does she do? She faces this 50-50 chance that she might die the next time she comes into his presence. She calls on her uncle to charge all the people, her people, to fast for her sake. For three days. If you want to do something significant for God, it may well be appropriate that like Esther, you fast. Friends, I hope you've caught something of the reasoning behind it all. I just want to close off very briefly by giving you a quick answer to the how. How should we fast? By the way, I should have said... You know, when we're talking about fasting, I think one of the questions that people have is, um, are there other kinds of fasts? Can you fast, um, you know, like a lot of people fast chocolate for Lent, don't they? Or um, fast from Facebook or whatever. And actually, the Bible doesn't ever indicate that there's any other kind of fast than denying what goes in your mouth. But um, certainly in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about married couples denying each other sex for a period in order to give themselves um, towards prayer. 
And uh, he doesn't call it a fast, but I think we get from there a kind of um, a precedent that there is other kinds of self-denial that you can engage in for the sake of greater devotion to God. However, I want us to think purely about fasting from food as we just bring this to a close. The point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 6, and the reason why I haven't labored this is because it's largely a repetition of the earlier sections on giving and praying. But the point he's making here is that to fast for the praise of men is surely a denial of the very thing that you are doing. If fasting by its nature is a humbling act, then what could be more anti to the ethos of fasting than making sure that other people know about it so that you get praise? God calls us when we fast to fast purely for his sake. And by the way, I know it's, it's kind of alluring to think, hey, if I fast, maybe I'll also get in better shape. And especially with all these sort of Californian fasting diets coming over, people advocating you know, the 5-2 or the whatever it is, all these fasting diets. And, and friends, I, I would humbly suggest that maybe at the root there is a desire for the praise of man. Why else are you trying to lose weight? Why else are you trying to look fantastic? Um, so that aside when we fast as an act of pure devotion to God Christ calls us to do it right in the knowledge that the Father sees and that he will reward you and so he says do it secretly we know that Jesus who offered himself for us on the cross. That that came as the culmination of his whole life and ministry as an act of devotion to the Father. And that all the threads connect in his life. The purpose for which he was born. The life that he lived when he was born. A life of perfection and holiness. A life of devotion. We know that Christ fasted for us, really, when he went into the wilderness for those 40 days. All of this was a way of submitting and surrendering himself to the Father. And the same Jesus, who has died on your behalf, and who has given you clean robes of righteousness, and called you to be his child, called you his friend, called himself your brother, the same Jesus who takes your sin upon him, and gives you fresh hope, and fresh life, and fresh vision, will occasionally call you to do hard things for him, and that will include fasting. In Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, literally your flesh, your meat, this thing that you can touch right now, present it, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How wonderful that he says, by offering your body, that's your spiritual worship. Dear friends, the only reason we do it is because Christ has already purchased us. We belong to him. And I want to encourage and exhort you that if the Spirit is speaking to you about this, whether to address a specific issue in your life or for a particular season that you're going into, then engage with it in it with vigor and with the desire that God will speak to you and use you mightily for his glory.
Let me pray, and then I'm going to hand back to Coyote. Lord Jesus, as you called us to obey you, your desire was that the apostles would go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Lord, we know that some of the things you called us to do just require this bare, raw obedience. And Lord, you know, some of that stuff we just don't enjoy and it's not particularly nice. But God, I pray that as we seek to be your servants and as we seek to walk in obedience, that Lord, we walk under the assurance that the Father sees and that the Father will reward us. I pray that we'd walk under that assurance knowing, Lord, that our, our measly acts of devotion are caught up in all of Christ's devotion and offered to you of something perfect and sweet and delightful. We thank you that Christ has made that possible for us. That even our mixed motives and even our imperfect efforts at fasting, how we fast and then get grumpy with our friends or how we fast and then feel self-righteous for doing it, even our weak efforts to offer you devotion, Lord, you count them as something precious and special because we do it through your Son. We do it as your children. And so, Lord God, I pray that we as a church might consistently offer ourselves as a people who love you above everything else, including our own bodies, humbling ourselves, devoting ourselves, calling out to you on behalf of this great city, that, Lord God, as you see our hunger and passion for the city, you might move through our prayers and through our fasting to bring about healing for this place, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.